Well, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, the title uh, this morning, if we're to give the sermon, the title is that the church is never off duty. God's people are never off duty. You know, if Hollywood were making a film of uh, the book of Nehemiah, they would probably have stopped in Nehemiah chapter 6. You know, the walls are built. The enemies are discouraged and defeated. The people of God have achieved this great task that had been Nehemiah's dream. Uh, earlier that year as he was in Susa, uh, away, far away in Babylon, and happy ending. Or they may have finished at the end of chapter 12 if they were wanting to show that the building work wasn't just external and physical but internal and spiritual and the people were really built up and that everything uh, finished on this great climax of success. But that's not the book of Nehemiah. It finishes in chapter 13, not chapter 12 or chapter 6. And chapter 13, um, it's a real downer. In some ways, at first glance, at second glance, at third glance, but hopefully by the end of it we'll see that actually it's a vitally important chapter. Nehemiah has been away for some years. He had served for governor for 12 years. Then he returned to Babylon and he's been there some years and now he's come back. So we don't know how long the time lag is, but it's probably not that long, maybe five or ten years um, at, at this stage perhaps. But and as you read it, things are back to square one. Well, not quite chapter 1, but certainly close to square 1. The walls are still standing, but the people have disintegrated. And God's Word is telling us real history. It's not a fairy story. This is real life in the real world, and it's really helpful. And there's three things that I want us to see that are going to be helpful for us as a church and helpful for us as individuals. First of all, success is not the constant experience of the church. Success is not the constant experience of the church, and success is not the constant experience of the Christian. I was talking to someone yesterday, and they were saying that how in some churches that they're familiar with, that this is how it's set out. It's, it's always the verses about success. It's always those verses about whatever you turn your hand to, you'll prosper. And God being with you and giving all your plans success. It's always those sorts of passages that are spoken on. And people are given the impression that the story of the church and the story of the Christian life is going to be one of constant success. Not for Nehemiah. Not in chapter 4, 5, and 6. Not in chapter 13. It's... It's one of turmoil and struggle. Success is the ultimate experience of the church. You see that in Revelation, the return of Christ. Uh, we see him coming and making everything new, defeating his enemies and calling his people together. It's the final experience of the church. It will be the eternal experience of the church, but it's not the constant experience right now. We see that here. Nehemiah has returned from a few years away. But prior to that, they had, it would seem, 12 years where things 
were glorious. The commencement of those 12 years were marked by reading God's word, the people gathering in their thousands in the public square in Jerusalem to hear God's word read. They confess their sin. They recommit to God in certain areas of life. They're set out for us in chapter 10. They were separating themselves from the people. They were giving their offerings to God. They were going to keep the Sabbath day. They were no longer going to engage in in marriage with the nations around them. And for 12 years, it seems to have gone well. And then Nehemiah departs. When he returns, he finds Tobiah, the Ammonite, living in the temple courts, in the precincts. He's turned one of the storerooms of the treasury into his own private apartment. And he's been allowed to do this by one of the priests, if not the high priest. A little bit of confusion. Eliashib is mentioned uh, twice. Um, it could be two priests with the same name, one the high priest and one uh, a priest in charge of the storeroom. Um, or it could be the same man. No matter. One of them has brought Tobiah, the arch enemy of Nehemiah, uh, right into the very heart of Jerusalem. And then Sanballat, the other enemy, his daughter's married to the high priest's grandson. And then Nehemiah, you can imagine him walking around the city on a Sabbath day, and there's a thriving market going on. He's looking, what is going on here? And he goes into the temple, and where is everyone? Where are the Levites? Where are the priests? Oh, they're not here. They're away out uh, working in their fields. Why are they working in their fields, he asks. Well, they're, they're, they had no food. Why had they no food? Sure, the people are meant to give them food. Well, the people stopped giving them food because there was no room to store it. Why is there no room to store all the food for the Levites and the priests? Well, somebody's living in the treasury storehouse. Who's living in the treasury? Uh, Tobiah. What? What do you mean Tobiah's living in the treasury? You mean Tobiah? The Ammonite is living in the treasury and all the worship of God has ground to a halt because this pagan is living right in the temple courts and the priests aren't getting fed and they've had to go out to work in their fields to earn a living. And then he's walking around the market and he hears the children gabbling along in the language of the Philistines and the language of the people of Ammon and Moab. language are you speaking? That's the language of mum or dad. Nehemiah must have put his head in his hands. Imagine him walking in around the courts of the temple and saying, Tobiah wandering around, what are you doing here? Tobiah smugly grinning and saying, oh haven't you heard? Come and see my my nice apartment. Just imagine the the pressure rising uh, and the face turning red. And this is reality. Success isn't the constant experience of the church or the individual. And it warns us not to be complacent. It warns us not to assume that when things are going well, they will keep on going well. It warns us that even when we make commitments, and we've made commitments, you you reaffirmed your commitment last week as uh, you took those vows again coming to the Lord's table. 
those vows of commitment to Christ and to his word. We're reminded, these people took vows, but they haven't kept them. And there's a warning to us that uh, the Christian life and the life of the church isn't always one straight uphill gradient of progress. We can have the best of intentions and we can fall into error. I suppose too there's also an encouragement here because there's times we'll look at ourselves and we'll think, well, am I a Christian at all? Because here I am back here again in the midst of this struggle. Or we'll look at the state of the church or we'll be disappointed with people in the church and we'll think, think, what's going on? The church, surely it should be better than this. And it should be, but remember that success isn't the constant storyline of the church. It's a hospital, not a museum. It's full of sick people. Sinners. We need to remember this. This side of heaven, there will be ups and downs. Some Christians have a very idealistic view of the church. And they forget that it's filled with sinners. Forget too that we are sinners. So, success is not the constant story uh, or experience of the church. Secondly, compromise is a constant snare to the church. Compromise is a constant snare to the church. What all's going on in chapter 13? Well, there's all sorts of things going on. There's um, intermarriage with pagan nations round about who had no time for God. There's the breaking of the Sabbath. There's the robbing of God's tithes, God's offerings. There's Tobiah and the temple precincts. And really, it all boils down to a common denominator. There's been compromise. The edges that marked out the distinctiveness of God's people from the nations around have got fuzzy. And so they're, they're marrying all sorts of people. Now, the issue here isn't racism or racial purity, or ethnic purity. The issue here is that the people of God were to marry God's people. They were to marry God's people. It's about spiritual purity. And Nehemiah uh, comes in, and he sees all sorts of distinctiveness being lost, all sorts of compromise. And we see that compromise set out in the three main sections of chapter 13. You'll see um, that three times, verse 14, verse 22, and the final verse of the chapter, verse 31, are marked out by Nehemiah's prayers. Divided into three sections. Three areas where he's had to put something right. And we want to look at those three areas this morning. Uh, in terms of compromise. First of all, we compromise, and they compromised when they put social influence above biblical principle. They put social influence above biblical principle. Here's Tobiah, the Ammonite official. And he's an important man. You know, he's got links straight back to the king in Babylon. And Nehemiah has left, and Eliashiv, Eliashiv maybe thought, oh, that Nehemiah fellow was awfully hard line, and, you know, we, we need to take a softer line, and, and we want to cultivate these people in authority so that, um, that, that they'll like us, 
And if we have influence with them, then we can have influence in society. And um, who knows what all was going through Eliashib's mind. But perhaps he's thinking, don't alienate Tobiah. The last thing he wanted to do is get on the wrong side of Tobiah because he's already threatened, threatened Nehemiah a lot uh, with telling tales to the king. And he thought, well, let's, let's, let, let's bring him back into the... the let's bring him... Um, into the temple. Uh, let's, however he reached that decision, I haven't a clue. It's a bizarre one. Maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there is a suggestion that there is some sort of intermarriage even between Tobiah and Eliashib's family. Uh, that, that may well be there. Um, but he's an Ammonite. We read in verses 1 to 3 that they weren't even allowed to be part of the assembly of God's people, part of the worship of God's people. And here he is living in the very temple precincts. And I, again, that's, this isn't some sort of ethnic exclusion. Ammonites and Moabites could come and worship God. They could come and be part of the people of Israel if they stopped their pagan worship and became part of the people of God and became part of the people of Israel. They could come. Ruth came. Uh, and there's a whole book written about her, Ruth the Moabites, who is this great figure in, in the history of David the king. So you could come, but you had to leave your pagan ways behind and come and, and give your allegiance and your worship to the God of Israel. But Tobiah, it would seem, isn't, hasn't done that. And his stuff displaces the very items for worship, the incense used for worship, the articles of the temple, the grain, the tithes, and everything. Compromise has happened because the people were more concerned about the influence that they would have with Tobiah and the influence Tobiah could have. They were more concerned about that social pressure than they were about biblical principle. And they put friendship above faithfulness. And there's the danger for us as a church and as individuals that we put our desire for social influence above principle. And churches have done that. They they think, well, we've got to keep in with government uh, and we've got to keep in with those in power so they don't criticize government policies. They don't call the nation uh, to repent and they don't rebuke elected officials who have taken, who are maybe members of the church, who have voted in disagreement with God's words. Oh, no, 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 don't upset them. Don't upset them. We want to stay in with them. No, we can't take that sort of line. There's the pressure on churches not to speak as loudly on society's golden cows, the, the, the things that the sacred uh, topics of society, the minute it's, Gender and sexuality are the, the sacred, sacred cards. Don't say anything about those. Just keep your opinions private. And then we'll, we will listen to what you have to say if you keep quiet. How that works, I don't know. But um, society seems to say if, if you'll speak on other issues, we'll listen. But you've got to toe the line on these other issues. And we compromise. And preachers are... The pressures on preachers not to offend. John the Baptist didn't follow that route. Um, whenever he rebuked Herod 
for uh, taking his brother's wife. It cost him his head, but he didn't compromise. And the pressure comes on us as individuals to, for the sake of influence maybe in society or maybe in our schools to have a group of friends that we don't want to stand out from the pressure comes on our young people to tone down our beliefs. One of the young guys in our Galway church was the only one in his school who was prepared to stand up and say that he would vote no in the same-sex marriage referendum. And the pressure on that guy. Think what, what, what faithfulness the biblical principle he showed. And yet there were maybe many others who agreed with him, but who weren't strong enough to stand up and say it because they were bowing to social pressure. We need to be careful of this pressure that can cause us to compromise. And it can be very subtle and sneak in up on us in all sorts of ways. That's the first one. The second one is where we put lifestyle above worship. Verses 15 to 23, we read that Nehemiah sees them treading the wine presses on the Sabbath day, loading up their donkeys, their animals, to cart grain into Jerusalem to sell on the Lord's day. Um, Buying and selling, there's a thriving import industry with tire. And God had given the Sabbath day for rest and remembering God had given it for blessing and for benefit. God had given it to be a holiday and a holy day. And God had warned them before they went into exile that one of the reasons they were going into exile was that they hadn't kept the Sabbath. And Nehemiah says that here. He says in verse 18, he says, Don't you remember? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and our city? You can imagine the people saying, ah, sure, it'll be grand. Don't worry. It'll be fine. Sure. What's good for trade is good for Jerusalem. What's good for Jerusalem is good for God's people. What's good for God's people is good for the temple. We all benefit from this. Well, they were going to benefit. Their own pockets were going to benefit. But what's happening is they're losing their distinctive edge. They've put their lifestyle above the command to be in God's house on God's day worshipping God. And they're not there because they've put their way of doing things first. And that must not be. They'd rather be ordinary than worship. They'd rather look like everybody else than enjoy a relationship with God. And that's not just a Sabbath day issue. That's a whole bigger issue where we put our desire, our lifestyle, above um, above obeying God, above worship. Uh, it can affect our giving where we don't give how we should to God's work. And that's what was going on here. The people weren't giving. They were slackening off in their giving because, well, they had a lifestyle that they wanted to maintain as well as them not being able to give because uh, Tobiah was living in the treasury. They have a lifestyle they're wanting to maintain here. 
and it's of impacting their worship of God. And there's two areas in which our obedience to God directly impinges our lifestyle. The keeping of one day for God, one in seven, and the giving to God of our offerings. Giving sacrificially. The Old Testament people gave a tenth. Can you imagine how, how uh, that marked them out as different? They're giving a chunk of their income to support the work of God. Um, they, they were actually taking a Sabbath year, one every seven years when the farmers wouldn't cultivate their land. They did that too. Imagine how that marked them out as distinctive uh, as God's people. They were trusting God to provide. And God said, I would provide three times as much in year six. If you take year seven off, I'll provide far, far more. And he promises to do that with all our giving, that if we give trustingly to him, whether it's a day a week, whether it's our tithe, whatever it is, that he will more than supply. And so these people are putting their own desire to manage their own lifestyle above trusting God, and they're just looking like the world around them. And that's so easy to do. Even after all the excitement and all the great hubbub of recommitment, we can slide back down again. We need to be on our guard. We need to be on our guard. When our lifestyle causes our commitment to God, to fall by the wayside. And the third area is whenever we put our desire above faithfulness. This is not just a lifestyle choice. This is our own, I want this. Not just I'm going to do this, but I really want this. The third section from verse 23 to 28, we find there's been a whole intermingling, a marrying among the nations said this isn't about um, ethnic purity, but about spiritual purity. God's people were to marry those who valued God. And Solomon is cited. Solomon is cited here. Um, just reading this section in, in First Kings this morning about Solomon and how he married 700 wives. And three had 300 concubines. And they led him astray. And his children were all over the place. And that's what we see as part of Nehemiah's concern. It has implications for the children. They, they couldn't read or understand God's word because they didn't understand the language of the, the people of God in which the word of God was written. One writer says, It denies children the blessing of being brought up in a house where faith is constantly encouraged. Here's the seriousness. Here's the seriousness of putting our desires above faithfulness to God. And compromise reaches its pinnacle when the high priest's grandson is married to the daughter of Sanballat, who's been a plague since chapter 1. Say, oh, but they loved each other. Oh, but we are to love God more than we love people. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And compromise happens when we put our heart's desires above God's desires. And we need, we need to be careful. We mustn't do that. 
One writer makes a sobering comment. A single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. And Nehemiah summons the fathers to have a conversation with their sons and daughters about whom they will marry. And fathers, we need to have that conversation with our sons and daughters about who they marry. That they marry those who have the same values about God that they have. Because we love them and we love our children and our children's children and we're concerned not just with momentary happiness but with the eternal happiness of our children and the eternal happiness and welfare of our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. So we're not to put our desires above obedience in the area of relationship or in any other area. Otherwise, we end up compromising. And compromise, we see, is a constant snare and danger for us as a church, as a congregation, for us as individuals. We need to guard against it. Where we put ourselves, our likes, our desires, our want to be influential and people to like us and respect us, whatever it is, when we lower our standards just a little bit, just to get the Tobias of the world to like us and to approve of us, then look at the mess that comes. And then the third thing that we see, the, the success is not the constant experience of the church. Compromise is a constant snare to the church. And then thirdly, cleansing is the constant need of the church. Cleansing is the constant need of the church. The church is a hospital. Not a museum. It's a hospital filled with sick people. And hospitals need their own regime of cleansing and uh, hygiene. And it's very strictly monitored so we don't get extra bugs landing in on the sick. And that's what Nehemiah engages in here. And he doesn't mince his words and he doesn't mince his actions. He says in verse 7, I learned about the evil that had been done. Verse 11, I rebuked. Um, He calls down curses on the people. And you think, oh, that sounds a bit, has he lost his temper? Is he he just swearing all around him? Well, it's not swearing whenever we think of cursing like that. These people had committed themselves to God. They had taken an oath and a vow that they would obey God in these very areas. And whenever you break your vow to God, you're subject to God's judgment in the form of, well, in the form of God's curse. You don't get God's blessing. You get God's judgment. And Nehemiah is saying, this is what you signed up for. You're not going to receive blessing. You're going to receive judgment for breaking your oath to God. And he pulls the hair out of the man. He's shaming them, it would seem, publicly. They're going to have to explain why a chunk of their beard's missing. Well, Nehemiah pulled it out. Why? Because I disobeyed God. Um, He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't mince his actions. He takes positive action as well as negative action. He purifies uh, the rooms. (laughs) It's just great the bit where he throws Tobias stuff out. How much 
crack would that have been to watch? You know, now I go and go easy, or Tobiah going, go easy with that. That's, that cost a lot of money in them. I just throwing stuff out willy nilly. I uh, love to have seen it. Um, uh, and then there's a great bit at the end of the chapter where the high priest's grandson says, And I drove him away from me. The Hebrew says, I chased him. Just like we say in Donegal, he got raced. And Nehemiah running after the guy, and the guy running for all he's worth, looking over his shoulder at the man chasing him. You think, well, is Nehemiah just a grumpy man? Well, that's why we read from Mark 11, because we see that you can be so passionate about God's people and God's kingdom and God's house like Christ himself was, that that is the right thing to do, that action has to be taken. Cleansing needs to happen. It is serious. Here's Nehemiah as God's appointed leader. These people had taken vows. And he's holding them to their word. And Nehemiah refuses to allow that holiness is negotiable or relative. They say, oh, look, look, we're still a lot better than the Ammonites. We're still a lot better than the Moabites. And I say, no, 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 we don't measure it off the people around us. We measure it off God and his word. And they say, ah, but, 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 Nehemiah, you know, can we not negotiate on this and let Tobiah keep his stuff and maybe move a little bit out? It's not negotiable. God's standards are not negotiable. And Nehemiah knows that. He knows these people are going to meet God and they'll not negotiate with God. So it's not kind to the people. It's not kind to let them feel that they can negotiate when they can't. People might say, but he's not nice. came across a a great quote from a surprising source. J.I. Packer, who's an English writer and theologian and a very nice man. And J.I. Packer said this. There are more important things in life than being nice. Now, when he says that, that's when you sit up and take note. There are more important things in life than being nice. And then another writer, Dale Ralph Davis, there are times when gentleness is a sin. So, cleansing is the constant need of the church, the constant need of the individual. There are times we we need to be ruthless with ourselves. We need to fight sin in our own lives. We need to chase it out. Nehemiah is fighting for the next generation and for this generation. And that's vital. And that's something that we need to do as individuals. We need to cleanse our own lives. That's something that happens every time you read God's Word. If you ask yourself, what do I need to put into practice from this? It's something that happens every Lord's Day as God's Word is preached. It's something that should happen at our Bible studies when we're studying and say, what should I do because of it? That is when cleansing occurs. It happens in conversation whenever one of our, our brothers or sisters in Christ says, I don't think you should say that. Or I don't think you should have done that. Do we get up on our high horse? Or do we hear them say, there's an area that you need cleansing in. 
or it may happen that the elders or the minister uh, have to come alongside and say, here's an area we've noticed where your life isn't lining up with God's word. And if we, have, if we have to do that, we do it because we love you, because we care for you, and because we care for you, for your children, for your grandchildren. We care about God's honor and God's glory. So, as we think about cleansing being the constant need, let's ask ourselves two questions. Is there anywhere that we have slipped or are slipping into comfortable compromise? The second question is, where do we need to work at cleansing? Where do we need to work at cleansing? Where are we slipping into compromise? And where do we need to work at cleansing? And this is vitally important. Why does, why does it end at chapter 13? Well, because everybody knew then what went on after Nehemiah left. And then Nehemiah returns, and we need to see what happens when God's appointed leader returns. Because there is one coming who is greater than Nehemiah. He's going to return to his church, and he's going to purify it, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. <coughs> and he's going to say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You see, the true and greater Nehemiah is going to come back. He's going to look at those who claim to be his people. And he's going to separate them. And we need to be ready for that day. And those who have put their trust in him and their trust has been evident by how they have sought to follow him. Say, these are my sheep. They followed my voice. They, they loved my commands. And they sought to, they, they weren't perfect. You know, the church, the church is a hospital where any broken sinner can come for cleansing and wonderfully can keep coming back for cleansing. But it's not a place for forgiven people to wallow. So, are we a sheep or a goat? Are we one who has looked to Christ for cleansing and who continues to look to Christ for cleansing? Because he's the only one who can make us clean. Remember, the church or the Christian is never off duty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are somber truths in this passage. And yet we thank you for them. We thank you for the helpful balancing truth that success isn't the constant experience of the church. We would long it to be, but we know it's not our personal experience in our own lives. Uh, and we're thankful that, that you reassure us by saying that that's not it. We thank you that there will be an ultimate and final triumph. Father, we pray that you would guard us against compromise, against softening the edges that you have put, the borders that you have put around your people. 
guard us from softening those edges and dallying with the world around us that would have us tone things down a lot so that they feel comfortable whilst internally we feel uncomfortable. And Father, help us to be cleansing our own lives and help us to to guard the church so that it stands as a lighthouse with its windows kept clean so that the light can radiate out, so that lost people can come in. Lord, help us, we pray, for our welfare and for the welfare of those around us. Let us be a light to the nations. And may zeal for your house consume us. Zeal for your Savior, your Son, consume us. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.